Welcome to Mind Milk Theory, an arts podcast about niche interest nerdery, hosted by me, sometimes contemporary artist Jim Lockie. This podcast is essentially a serving up of thoughts and ideas that have been marinating in my notes app over the past week. I record it usually on a Sunday afternoon, which means there may be some background noise from neighbours doing a DIY and weekend bikers going past. Uh, so I apologise for that. I also apologise for any popping peas. Uh, I'm doing my best to kind of work out how best to record this thing. And uh, we're getting there slowly each week. I feel like we get a little better. Anyhow, this episode, The Power of Images, a story about treachery, truth, iconoclasm, and enlightenment through pictures. Before we get into it, there are two artworks that feature heavily in this episode, and so your enjoyment of the episode will probably be much improved if you have a quick Google to remind yourself of what they look like if you're not familiar with them. The first piece I'm going to discuss is The Treachery of Images by René Magritte, and the second is Jacob Epstein's sculpture, Jacob and the Angel. Feel free to open your browser while you listen and have a look at some images of them. At first, this episode was going to be a deep dive into iconoclasm. And if you want to hear that deep dive, listener, please let me know because I have a lot of material on it. But what I've tried to do instead is tie it into a wider discussion about the nature of the images we make in art. So if you paint, draw, sculpt or otherwise create images, I hope that this will be useful to you. Okay, enough waffle, on with the episode. Part 1. This is not an introduction. Ce n'est pas un pipe. This is not a pipe. Those words are the tagline, the subtitle beneath the image of a smoker's pipe. The words and image are painted by the artist René Magritte. The piece is titled The Treachery of Images and highlights the essential lie of representation in art. For what it says and how deftly it says it, The Treachery of Images has become one of my favourite surrealist works. But because its meta-message is so well put and with such brevity, it is easy to miss that there is more there than a simple irony. Yes, the painting is not a pipe, but there's more to it than that. Consider, for instance, that the text on the painting takes up as much, if not more, of the picture plane than the pipe itself. And that pipe is depicted side-on, flatly lit, and casting no shadow, and so reads more like an element of graphic design than a rendering of an object in space. I.e. it has become a symbol, like text in itself. It has become something closer to writing or emoji than realism. That shows the depth of treachery in this image, the way it is able to conjure a pipe so completely in the mind of the viewer, despite its demonstrative absence. It makes me wonder, a realistic painting of a pipe in a situation, perhaps sitting on a table, I think that would seem somehow less of a pipe and more of a painting to me as a viewer. The iconographic nature of Magritte's depiction is doing some of the work to sell the trick. The tagline, 
this is not a pipe, insists to the viewer that despite appearances, there is no essential pipeness contained within the arrangement of paint on canvas. We might think of the subtitle purely as metatextual commentary designed to convey something true about images that is rarely thought about. We might then imagine this work in a reductive way to be clever, but without much depth beyond the initial point. However, as we delve back through art history, we find that this issue of representation in art is not so easily reconciled. And perhaps the greatest trick that pipe plays is to make us think that the line between the reality and the depiction can be so crisply drawn. Part 2. Why do you worship them? Now, I've told this story many times, but never in this context. So forgive me if you've heard this one before. The story is from somewhere around the year 500 CE and is a midrash or commentary on the Abraham story from Hebrew scripture. It tells the story of the night before Abram left his father's house to follow this divine voice he'd been hearing. It is a story about the transition to monotheism, a pivotal moment in our cultural history. It's also a story about images. So Abram's father made idols, according to the story. Clay figurines that represented the gods and spirits worshipped in Mesopotamia. Abram's dad ran a shop to sell these idols, so the house was filled with them. I imagine shelves stacked high and leaning in on the room. Every available surface had a sculpted creature on it. So, the night before he leaves, Abram takes a stick in his hands, places the tip on the end of a shelf, and runs it along, sweeping every idol to the ground. One end to the other, they all come crashing down. He takes his stick to another shelf and another. He smashes the idols on the table and guarding the windows. He goes ballistic on these idols until he's out of breath, sweating and surrounded by broken pottery. One idol is left standing, the biggest one. So Abram takes the stick he'd used to smash up the room and he places it in the idol's open hands. The next morning, Abram's father sees his god smashed and broken on the ground, and he asks his son in panic and desperation, What happened here? Abram points to the one remaining idol, stick in its hands, and he says, Isn't it obvious? That one did it. His father doesn't see the funny side. He replies, Don't be so foolish. These idols are just clay. I made them myself. They can't do anything. Abram replies, then why do you worship them? Then he leaves to follow the divine voice. The God of Hebrew scripture is very particular about refusing to be represented. Rule four of the Big Ten given to Moses was to make no graven images. And instead of a name, this God says, I am that I am. The divine presence even refuses to be represented through a name. In Hebrew scripture, the people rebel and turn back to this God over and over, and each return is marked by the purging of idols from high places. 
the seductive and treacherous nature of images is a big theme in Hebrew scripture. Modern Judaism, Christianity and Islam are consequently affected by this. European history is consequently affected by this. European art has consequently been affected by this. In the Byzantine era, there was the iconoclast movement, in which through debate and sometimes force, religious iconography was purged from Christian churches. The debate raged and people lost their lives for the sake of pictures which seems a trivial thing to us, but it was a source of major division. The arguments for icon smashing were not only theological, but they were also political. The success of the Byzantine Empire had been spun as evidence of God's favour, but in the 7th century Islam had grown into its own empire and was taking land. The Byzantine Empire was shrinking and Christianity's use of icons in comparison to the Muslim's strict restriction on images seemed like maybe it was the source of the problem. Maybe God's favour had been transferred. There had always been calls within Christianity to say that, that the culture of icon veneration didn't sit right with scripture or the inherited portions of faith Christians took from Judaism. But it took invasion for that debate to rise to a crescendo. The theological argument was that if God was unrepresentable, any depiction of him, of saints or religious scenes would necessarily reduce contain and distract from the worship of the real God. Even if it's a picture of Jesus, these theologians would argue it's still an idol and therefore giving something created the veneration and adoration due the creator. On the side of defending religious art was the argument that these images were a tool to help people focus on God and not intended to receive worship themselves. Within icon making, strict traditions emerged which guided the aesthetic bounds of what religious icons could depict and how they looked. So even amongst the defenders there was this sense that even images of Christ should be a little abstract, that there would be danger in making it too real. It is no secret that it was the icon lovers that won in the end, with the last true ecumenical council of the East and West churches giving the thumbs up to the use of images in Christian religious practice. Iconoclasm would rise again centuries later within Protestantism, and I think this is partly because, from a religious and theological perspective, the iconoclast's argument is stronger. And within Orthodox Christianity, many people do end up confusing the icon with what it's meant to represent. Why else would people kiss icons, dress them up, reach out to touch them in hopes of miraculous healing, if there isn't a deep belief that the image itself carries something deeper. But as within the Byzantine era, there was a political pressure for rulers to give iconoclasts a greater voice. We see this especially in Britain, where Henry VIII used the banner of religious purity as a cover for raiding churches for their valuables to fund national interests and his personal interests. All this history, as well as being interesting in its own right, has something to tell artists and image makers outside of religious contexts. Images carry meaning, 
They do carry a power. They are treacherous. Magritte's painting may not be a literal pipe, but it is much more than a smear of brown paint on a magnolia canvas. Part 3. The One with the Stick In that story about Abram, the biggest idol in his father's shop ends up being the one with the stick in its hands, given to it by Abram. It's nominated power for the sake of a joke in the story, but when we as artists and creatives think about the images we make, maybe it would serve us to ask, who do we give the stick to here? What kind of power will this image wield? Over the last couple of months, I've been working on a series of lino cut prints that you can take a look at on my Instagram. They're pictures of religious icons with the hands and faces removed. During the Reformation, this was often the way iconoclasts would deface religious icons. They'd remove the parts that were necessarily and recognisably human, the parts that you could say were made in the image of God. There are a number of churches in Europe in which the headless statues still stand, silenced and whitewashed. I was interested in how these abstracted pillars of stone still had power, and in a sense they're still icons just transformed into icons of purity instead of a focus for adoration through their beauty. It was my interest in the power that still resided in those broken images that prompted me to make work about it. And at the time, I thought its historical subject matter would take some work to make feel relevant in our present moment. How wrong I was, however, as it was only a couple of weeks later that we began to see statues being pulled down amidst Black Lives Matter protests. Once again, we have been woken up to the truth of the power of images. In Bristol, the statue of slave trade operator Edward Colston was pulled down and thrown into the river. It was a beautiful moment, and though some have lamented the loss of a statue, the truth is the presence of that statue had an impact on the way people saw the world. You make an image of someone that is that big and bronze and standing proud, and you say something about the depicted figure, which speaks more deeply and subtly, than any plaque explaining historical context ever could. When we make art, we are playing with powerful forces. Images do things to humans in deep ways. And I hate using that kind of vague language, but it's true. Why else is art even here? The things we choose to represent in our art, the themes we explore, the things our art stands for, when we embark on a project, we stand in a room filled with a thousand possible works and we smash them all till we leave our stick in the hands of just one, giving it the power. We need to ensure we're happy with the one we choose. Part 4. A rock is just a rock. This last part feels like a, a big tangent, but I'm going to trust that we'll discover the logic in it together. I want to talk about another favourite artwork of mine, Jacob Epstein's Jacob and the Angel. Magritte's pipe excites me on an intellectual and philosophical level, but Epstein's Jacob and the Angel speaks to my soul and to my gut. As a representation of a scene from the Bible and the fact that the angel in question is in the biblical text, I am themselves, talking about it within an episode about iconoclasm adds an extra dimension to it. The work is a marble sculpture depicting the story of Abraham's descendant Jacob wrestling with God and getting his name changed to Israel. 
So we're just all over the big Genesis moments today. Epstein's treatment of the human and angel forms communicates the struggle of that all-night wrestling match through the weight and power of the marble, which he seems to have had to fight with to find the figures within. He's taken away so little material that you can still sense where the raw edge of the marble block was before he took his chisel to it. It is as if Jacob and the angel were squeezed in there and could barely fit. This proportioning and conversation with the material means that the viewer can never really get away from the fact that this marble block is a marble block. The figures and the images don't quite escape from it. It is an image, but it's also material. Jacob in the Angel doesn't feel like a treacherous image, but an unrelentingly authentic one. The work emulates Epstein's personal wrestling with his own spiritual heritage, and though my spiritual heritage and direction is different to his, I relate deeply to that struggle and that wrestling. It's almost as if Jacob in the Angel isn't a representation of the biblical Jacob's wrestle with God, but the work itself is the byproduct of Jacob Epstein's wrestle with his heritage. I think that's why the piece comes to mind in relation to this conversation about images. It's not a representation of someone wrestling. The work is Epstein's wrestling, his wrestling with the rock, with God, with sculpture as a form. The work is that it is. Epstein creates a counterpoint to the treachery of images. Images can be treacherous, but they can also be truthful. They can be teachers. Magritte's pipe is a teacher. Epstein's marble is a teacher. I hope for us in our creative endeavours that we can create teachers, using art to explore, uncover, joke with and wrestle with our world. That's all I've got today. It was a felt a bit more random uh, and free-flowing, but I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I hope, guys, that you will uh, stay safe, stay compassionate, stay creative, and I will see you next time. By the way, our intro music is by Prod Riedemann, and you can find him on the internet. I will see you next time. Have a great week. Bye.